bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's potter's field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. We've been asked, how can you pick up a signed copy of our book, New York City's Heart Island, A Cemetery of Strangers, and our audiobook narrated by Norma Jean? And you may do so by simply logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. Ruth Proskauer Smith was a pro-choice and reproductive rights advocate who passed away in her Manhattan home on January 22, 2010, at the age of 102. She was born into a distinguished family. Her father, Joseph, was a judge on the New York State Supreme Court, and her mother, Alice, helped found the Euthanasia Society of America. Ruth P. Smith, as she became known, spent her days in New York assisting with pro-euthanasia campaigns. Even after she was over 100 years old, she spent much time teaching other senior citizens about the Supreme Court as she wanted to pass her knowledge on to others as before she died. As her son Anthony, who confirmed her death, said, she died where she wanted to, when she wanted to, and as she wanted to. But in mid-2016, after an extensive investigation by the New York Times, it was revealed that Ruth P. Smith, who had donated her remains for cadaver research at the New York University School of Medicine and stipulating in a directive that when NYU School of Medicine was done with her body, she was to be cremated and buried in a dignified manner as specified by her family. Instead, she was interred in a mass grave on Hart Island. NYU Medical was forced to apologize for, quote, allowing bodies donated for use as cadavers by medical students to wind up in mass graves for paupers. A representative from NYU called it a mistake. Today we have a very special guest. Uh, his name is Ian Dobigan. 
He's a professor of history at the University of Prince Edward Island and a writer on the history of medicine. He is the author of the book, A Merciful End, The Euthanasia Movement in Modern America. And Professor Dobigin, welcome to Talking Heart Island. How are you? I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Well, great. Um, you know, first, before we uh, begin, can you tell us where Prince Edward Island is? That's a good question, Mike, but I suspect that about half your audience might, in fact, know where Prince Edward Island is. And the reason I say this is because uh, Prince Edward Island, which is an island off the coast of the Canadian provinces of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, and what are called the Maritime Provinces of Canada, uh, it was the site for the uh, well-known novels um, entitled Anne of Green Gables, which countless women around the world have read and and loved. And because of this reason, we get thousands of visitors every year, tourists coming to Prince Edward Island to see the, um, uh, the supposed uh, locations where uh, Anne of Green Gables author Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote these, these best-selling novels. And so um, while many of your audience may not be able to pinpoint it on the map, I think that a lot of them may have heard of Prince Edward Island through the Anne of Green Gables uh, connection. Anne of Green Gables in particular is very, very popular in Japan. We have countless Japanese tourists every year coming to, to, to the island simply because of their fascination with Anne of Green Gables. So, you know, that's, that's in a nutshell, um, a little background about Prince Edward Island and, uh, and where it's located and why it's, it's well known today. Outstanding. Um, let's go to the issue, uh, your research on euthanasia. When and why did you develop this interest in, in this particular area? Good. Another good question, Mike. Uh, a lot of people who are drawn to the issue, of course, of euthanasia, which is, uh, of course, the word that usually that is taken from the Greek word for Greek for good death, and is commonly associated with things like physician-assisted suicide or lethal injection, or even uh, the use of advanced directors and living wills. Um, the the people become interested in this subject normally because they've had you know, an experience with a friend or relative who has gone through a difficult death and that sort of thing. Well, I came to the issue, I came to the field uh, purely from an academic perspective. I'd written on the history of the eugenics and uh, family planning movements in modern America in the 20th century, and I noticed a curious thing. I noticed that many of the people involved in the campaigns to decriminalize birth control to uh, decriminalize abortion and so on. Um, these were these were people who were also interested in uh, euthanasia. That again, legalizing euthanasia in its various forms, and their names would crop up in uh, you know the boards of directors for these various organizations. And so I said to myself, well, first of all, has anyone written the history of the right to die movement in in America in, in the 20th century? And I discovered nobody had. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and second of all, um, I decided that, uh, you know, that, that would be an interesting subject to, to, uh, explore. So I got in touch with one of the right to die organizations at the time. This is the late 1990s. 
And I asked out of the blue, you know, can I get permission to look at your unclassified, uncatalogued records in Baltimore? And they said, um, yeah, sure, go on ahead. And so that's really, the, those were really the first steps that I took to writing the book. It wasn't because of any particular personal interest in the subject. It was just to follow, you know, sort of kind of tangents that uh, led from my, uh, from earlier research. Now, since then, of course, and since that was a while ago, and we've all gotten older since then, uh, you know, I've had uh, more life experiences um, that, uh, that, uh, that are associated with the issue of euthanasia. So it's become a little more personal for me. Uh, but again, my, my original interest in the subject was purely scholarly. And of course, one of the names that kept cropping up all the time when you look at the boards of directors of these various organizations, Planned Parenthood of America, uh, the Sterilization, uh, the, the Association for Voluntary Sterilization, the National Abortion Rights League, um, the Euthanasia Society of America. One of the names that kept coming up all the time was Ruth P. Smith. Do um, can you explain uh, how she developed her interest? Because it's very personal for her. Uh, I believe it had something to do with her mother, correct? Yeah, her mother um, uh, was um, uh, a one of the founding members of the Euthanasia Society of America, which was founded back in the 1930s and really was a tiny organization, even as late as the. 1950s, her mother was was one of the primary founders and one of the key figures in that movement. Well, in the late 1950s, her mother um, her mother's health began to decline, and she had a very difficult death. Um, she had signed uh, an advance directive telling her physician that you know when she was terminally ill, she wanted to be um, euthanized, and uh, the physician ignored those wishes, and that bothered Ruth, the daughter. Uh, very, very much, and um, and uh, and as she she told me, and she's, you know, she private she publicly uh, admitted uh, in in other instances, you know, that experience deeply deeply affected her. But what's interesting is, of course, that um, you know that uh, that she had been, but by, by that time she was a member of the organization, so she had been drawn to it also originally, not just from personal experience her mother's difficult death, but also because of, well, you know, ideological reasons. She saw the issues of, of birth control, uh, abortion, uh, death as all being, you know, related as issues of personal autonomy. These were issues that uh, she felt individuals should have control over, whether it's control over uh, your, you know, the birth of your children uh, or the control over your own death. Uh, but there's no doubt that her her mother's um, enduring uh, illness uh, deeply affected her and uh, made her even more militant about a cause she'd been interested in in the first place. How did you actually find uh, Ms. Smith? Uh, you know, I, I don't remember exactly, Mike, how I found her. Um, probably through my contacts with um, the Right to Die people, um, uh, I, I assume that was the reason, but, um, but it was easy finding her. And once I got in touch with her, um, she was quite happy to, uh, for me to come and interview her. 
um, which we can talk about a little bit more in detail in a moment. Um, I suspect that um, that that Ruth Smith felt, you know, and when I re- interviewed her, it was the year 2000. I, I suspect she felt at that stage that she'd been overlooked as a key figure in the history of U.S. social reform. That, and I, I dare say, you know, the vast majority of your audience would never have heard of her until today. Uh, but again, she played very key roles in all those reform movements, which have done so much uh, to shape uh, American society in the in the 21st century. So it wasn't um, uh, it, it wasn't difficult getting in touch with her, and she was very welcoming when I um, when I suggested uh, doing an interview with her on site in New York City. And on site meant her apartment at the Dakota Hotel, correct? That's correct. Yeah. It's a funny story because, because, you know, my only, um, uh, exposure to the Dakota hotel had been as I'm sure many people, uh, and I'm sure many people have had that same experience was through the, the movie, uh, Rosemary's baby, which was made in the 1960s and which was supposedly filmed inside the Dakota apartment building. Uh, many of the scenes were shot uh, outside it. So that was my only frame of reference. So when I talked to her over the phone, she, when I got to New York city, she, she gave me the address of the place. And, uh, and I walked, I walked up to the building, uh, at West 57th, I think it is. And, uh, I didn't recognize the building, um, as I entered it. And, uh, as I got into her apartment, she was showing me around her apartment and showing me the many photographs on the walls about the place. And she said at one point, she said, I don't think you know where you are, do you? (laughs) And I said, probably, well, no, I don't. And she said, you're in the famous Dakota building. And that was the first I knew that, uh, where that, uh, that she actually had an apartment in that building. Um, so it was, it was, a, it was much of a, it was a big surprise, uh, to, uh, to find myself in the Dakota building, which again, I had heard of, uh, before, uh, because it's, it's very famous, but I had, I had the slightest idea getting up there and entering the building where I was going. So, um, that was the inglorious start to our interview. How, how old was she at the time of your interview? Um, she would have been in her nineties. Um, uh, uh, yeah, she would have been over 90. I don't remember exactly. Um, but she was very spry, um, and, uh, and, and quick witted, um, and, uh, and again, very forthcoming in talking about her, her past. Now, another interesting sidelight to our interview is that I was researching another book, and this is the history on the sterilization movement, and she had been a member of this organization called the Association for Voluntary Sterilization, as well as the Euthanasia Society of America. When I started asking her questions about that, she was really taken aback. She she said to me, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, she said, you know, I thought nobody knew about any of this stuff. (laughs) And uh, so I think she's a bit taken aback when I wanted to talk about that part of her career, but... um, we ended up speaking mainly about her background in the Euthanasia Society of America, and uh, we had a long conversation, and again, a very forthcoming one. How long did you spend with her that day? About two hours. And you described her, well, her sense of humor. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? 
Well, yes, she had a she had a, a, a sense of humor, certainly. Um, but the other thing about, about Ruth Smith's personality that I think many of your audience um, would like to know about was that uh, she was very feisty. Um, she was very combative. She was not an organization person. Um, she didn't work well in meetings. She wasn't a good bureaucrat. And in almost every organization that she functioned in, she would have these big squabbles with other members of of the organizations. Um, now that doesn't mean she wasn't. She was very polite and and again affable with me. So I I won't say that you know that translated into her relations with individuals, but um, but she was very uh, a very acerbic. And uh, I have this um, uh, this quote from another member of uh, the uh, the Planned Parenthood organization who described Ruth Smith as, quote, a lean, soldierly woman who had the no-nonsense bearing of a headmistress of a particularly severe turn-of-the-century school for English gentlewomen. Her flinty exterior concealed a heart of steel. I wonder what he really thought. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what he really thought. Uh, But that does give us a clue as to why she had so many uh, tiffs with um, with important people over the years uh, in in these organizations. But again, none of that showed in her interview with me. Very friendly. What, what was her main point that she wanted to get out to really emphasize? You mean about euthanasia? Correct, or yeah. about... Well, actually, yeah, euthanasia well, and the right, uh, and the pro-choice uh, movement. Well, as far as reproductive rights were concerned, she was, of course, vehemently pro, pro-life. She was a staunch uh, supporter of abortion rights. Um, and it's significant that once the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court ruling came down in 1973, decriminalizing abortion, uh, she shifted just about all her attention from the field of family planning and euthanasia onto, sorry, family planning and um, abortion uh, to euthanasia. So, so from the early 1970s to the rest of her life, her primary concern was with euthanasia, and she wanted. Uh, she sought the legalization of physician-assisted suicide, um, what were then termed living wills. These are the advanced directives that uh, first became available in the 1960s, um, and um, ultimately, of course, she wanted, uh, she made no bones about this, she wanted the legalization of uh, physician-administered uh, euthanasia, that is, lethal injection. And, uh, and of course, that has become legal now in several countries in Europe. And here in Canada, just recently, our federal government uh, uh, legalized both physician-assisted suicide and lethal injection by physicians. So those were her goals in in the field. And it's interesting because in her interview, she told me that she, when her time came, and, and certainly she felt at the time her time hadn't come, but when her time came, she wanted to be put uh, out of her misery, just like the racehorse secretariat had in 1998. That's what she told me. She wanted, so, you know, she wanted individuals to have the freedom to, and again, choose the time, the place, and the manner of their own death. The issue of physician-assisted suicide, other than being, of course, a legal issue, 
I'm wondering, how do physicians uh, feel about this? Have you talked to many of them? If given the ability to, would they opt for this? Well, that, that's a very controversial question right now, because up to the 21st century, almost every medical organization, and that includes the American Medical Association, the Canadian Medical Association, the British Medical Association, international medical bodies, outside of the Netherlands and Belgium, all of these organizations rejected physician-assisted suicide. They didn't feel it was compatible with the ethics that physicians use governing uh, terminally ill patients. But you're seeing, as time goes on, Mike, you're seeing more and more sympathy in the ranks of physicians for legalizing these kinds of practices. In other words, you're seeing more and more physicians comfortable with the idea that they can provide medical aid in dying to their patients. So it's very much in flux right now. Uh, it depends on which physician you talk to. Some are willing to go down that route. Others are vehemently opposed. Uh, it, you know, the future will dictate uh, what, uh, what direction the American Medical Association goes. The American Psychiatric Association recently ruled that it's, uh, its opposition to physician-assisted suicide stands. They do not, they're not comfortable with the idea of extending the freedom to people with psychiatric problems to request assistance in dying, medical assistance in dying. Uh, but that too may change uh, in time because um, in the Netherlands and Belgium today, it is legal for people suffering from, say, depression or major anxiety to, uh, to request and receive medical assistance in dying. So it's very much in flux right now. Um, uh, I'm, as an historian, I'm only good at predicting the past, so I can't predict the future. I wonder what Ruth Smith would have said about people opting for physician-assisted suicide because they were depressed or anxious. It seems to be quite a leap from that to being suffering from a terminal illness and, and to be in great pain. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I suspect that Ruth Smith would be okay with that sort of thing. Again, her position on this issue was it was it was an issue of personal autonomy. If the individual, even if that person even if that person's rational capacities were um, disabled by a psychiatric illness, that it was up to the individual to decide. And, um, and this, this was a common theme throughout her career, uh, going back to her early years when she was schooled in ethical culture society schools back in New York city. Um, that was, that was, you know, the consistent theme for her right through her life. So, she, she um, I'm, I'm fairly sure from the records that I saw, the ESA records that I saw, board meetings and so on, that she's, she, um, she defended physician-assisted suicide. I don't think she was ever on record as saying she, she accepted physician-assisted suicide for people with psychiatric issues. But my suspicion is that she would have been okay with it. This might be a digression of sorts, but was Jack Kevorkian doing what he was doing at that point in time? Was that somebody that she would have been aware of? Oh, yes. She was very aware of Jack Kevorkian. Uh, Kevorkian was many, in many ways a maverick. He didn't belong to any of these 
any of the organizations like the Euthanasia Society of America or the Society for the Right to Die or Derek Humphrey's Hemlock Society. He wasn't, he wasn't officially aligned with these organizations, but he was very active in the 1990s, um, as you may know. He assisted the deaths of, of dozens of people, um, many of whom were not actually uh, physically ill. Um, and many of them, in fact, the vast majority of his, his patients that he ended up uh, assisting in their deaths were, were women. Um, and so when he, was ca- he, when he was capturing the headlines in the 1990s, somebody like Ruth Smith was very, very much aware of Jack Kevorkian. I didn't see any record of them having any um, communications. There was no record of any correspondence between her and Kevorkian. And I think her attitude towards Kevorkian, like many in the Right to Die movement, was that the less we have to do with him, the better. He's they, We don't disagree with what he's doing, but he's drawing too much publicity and adverse publicity to the kinds of causes that we're defending. So, um, yeah, Kevorkian was very active in the 1990s. Uh, and uh, and Ruth uh, Smith would have known, uh, uh, you know, would have known a great deal about him. So when you were done with your interview, you continued with your research, and then you had your book published. Was uh, Ruth Smith able to read your book? Uh, you know, I never followed up, Mike, with her as to her reactions to uh, to my book, and. Uh, Today, it's one of my regrets. Um, I, I, I should have, um, uh, but, uh, but nonetheless, I didn't. And uh, um, I was in some ways um, uh, leery about getting too close to people like uh, Ruth Smith because uh, in one encounter with uh, an associate of Ruth Smith's uh, in the Right to Die movement, um, I, I interviewed him over the phone uh, before I interviewed uh, Ruth Smith. And he got very belligerent with me, and the interview ended with him threatening to sue me if he ever mentioned me in his book. So, uh, you know, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't comfortable, entirely comfortable with trying to befriend these folks. Um, and, um, but at the same time, I do regret I didn't, didn't follow up with Ruth, Ruth Smith to see what she thought about, uh, about the book. I did follow up with one of the characters, one of the main characters in the book, um, who um, had a falling out with Ruth Smith. And at least he said he enjoyed the book, so um, so I had uh, so I, I was satisfied with that. Your subtitle, "The Euthanasia Movement in Modern America," is <clears throat> America. Are we different in our views of this? I mean, you mentioned that uh, this is legal uh, in parts of Canada, maybe all of Canada. I, Europe, I think, is more liberal in this area. But is that why you? Mm-hmm. Subtitled it "Modern America" because we we are behind the curve, I guess. Uh, I wouldn't say you're behind the curve, Mike. Um, there are now eight states which have legalized physician-assisted suicide. Um, it's kind of um, the glass is half filled or half empty issue. Um, if you're a, if a, if you're a person like Ruth Smith. You would see uh, the United States of America, the situation of euthanasia in the United States of America today as a kind of um, glass half, half, half empty. Um, because while, you know, as we've seen since my book came out, 
a handful of states have legalized physician-assisted suicide. Your Supreme Court has ruled that there, and unanimously ruled that there is no constitutional right to uh, to die. So, um, so in the courts, it's the the right to die movement has encountered some big uh, roadblocks. But on the other hand, again, they made some successes in individual states. Uh, and um, when you when you ask about America in general, I think. The better way of phrasing that is, well, what parts of America are you referring to? If you're referring to the West Coast, states like California, Washington, and Oregon, they're very sympathetic. The population there seems to be very sympathetic um, to legalizing physician-assisted suicide. In other parts of the uh, the country, um, there's more militant opposition to it. Uh, so it's, uh, it's it's in many ways a very political issue because it almost but not entirely breaks down according to major political party lines. Republicans tend to be much less sympathetic than Democrats to the issue. Um, so, you know, who knows again, what direction the United States of America is headed in the 21st century. I would say it's more, it's more interesting to look at the individual states and figure out where they're going. Um, so you're not really behind the curve but you're not at the head of the curve either. <laughs> well, Professor uh, Dobigid, this has been uh, beyond informative and fascinating. And I want to thank you very much for being a guest on Talking Heart Island. And as we say goodbye to you, we uh, managed to find some very rare audio uh, clips of Ruth Proskauer Smith talking about uh, reproductive rights and the euthanasia movement. Uh, and I think all of these were taken when she was somewhere between 95 and 100 years of age. So again, uh, Professor Dobigan, thank you very much for being our guest. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Mike. This is not a woman's problem. This is a people's problem. Okay. We guided the state in passing legislation legalizing the living will. Imagine an America where a pharmacy could refuse to fill a doctor-provided prescription because it violates a pharmacist's conscience. And there is a new poll that suggests decline in support of, the, of abortion rights. So now it's up to all of you. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean, and we're Talking Heart Island. Mm -hmm.